Hello everyone, welcome to Reservations. We're your hosts, I'm Rain William. Hi, Rain, what's going on? Um, oh, I'm Jeremy. <laughs> oh, whatever, who cares? Um, <laughs> excited to, uh, to discuss the movie today, however, oh. I, I have a correction to make. Okay. Um, uh, and it's on my part. So, we were discussing, uh, several weeks ago, we were discussing John Wayne. Uh-huh. Uh, in our Blazing Saddles episode. Right. All right. I got my ears mixed up. So by the time he was being offered the role, he had already done True Grit. So True Grit uh, was 69, right? Okay. See, I was thinking True Grit was Rooster Cogburn, which is 75. So he, this is the last part of his career, right? Uh, and I think he wanted to maintain the legacy, right? Okay. And not tarnish it. So I do want to make that correction. Ah, well. Sorry well, about that, guys. Well, welcome back, everyone. That's uh, we've never we never had a correction that early into an episode. Yeah, so I wanted to get out of the way because I felt really bad about. It. As soon as I looked, I was like, "God damn it!" Wow. I can't believe I messed that up. It's so. okay. We're not. We're. I mean, we're not all. You know, perfect. I mean, I was until that point. So <laughs> that really sucks. That now I'm not. So. Uh, but yeah, welcome back, everyone. Um, we are continuing in our series of Mel Brooks. Uh, I also have a correction. I realized that in that episode, I called it a Mel Brooks-a-thon, which I actually like it just being called Mel Brooks series. Mm. But anyway, uh, so if you remember from last week, which to us feels like forever ago, it does. Uh, we discussed Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Awesome movie. Great. Um, and this week, we were doing to discuss Mel's third uh homage which is high anxiety high anxiety which uh i think we mentioned it in the teaser last week for them uh that this is an homage to alfred hitchcock yes and it is it is an homage to his parody uh i know we discussed the difference between satire and parody before mm-hmm. uh this isn't satire at all. So nah. we won't get to satire again until next week. And so uh, so we've kind of bookended the the series with yeah. with the satire parody, 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 and then satire parody. So um, we're getting there. Yes. So, But this one is just silly, silly, fun, homage, parody stuff. So. Well, and you know, something I was noticing in my rewatch, which I rewatched it twice. Twice. Just because I, I was like, you know, go and watch it. I didn't finish it. The first rewatch, and then mm. I rewatched it last night and finished it. Um, kind of like what we've been saying since the beginning of this series is one of the big. I think one of the big things with this one is that Mel and everyone took it seriously. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that's why. And I'm going to bring this up next week. Um, why it's still a really good par- uh, parody yeah. and homage. Right. Because um, I'm going to bring up next you can, week. You can tell that he truly loves Alfred Hitchcock movies, and he respects them because the the things that he decided to over exaggerate for the parodies took some attention to detail. Yeah. Right. Um, we'll get into some of our favorite bits. It would be impossible to list all of them. Yeah, right? it would be impossible to list all of the movies that he referenced, right? Oh yeah, I think this is like over fifteen. It's he a lot, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I think it also helps that Mel 
was having a budding friendship with Alfred mm-hmm. during this time as well. And so I think it helped kind of getting the okay from the man himself. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, when I was watching the special features, they had Alfred's granddaughter mm-hmm. in on it. And she was saying how, like, a lot of people were saying it was the master of comedy versus the master of suspense. Right. Yeah, which yeah. I think sums up the movie perfectly. It does. Right? And it's almost like this perfect marriage yeah. of silly and suspense. Right? Yeah. And, and, and something else I kind of wanted to bring up just a little bit. Just kind of touch on what you were mentioning about satire. Um, as I mentioned off mic, you know, I, I recently watched that Mel Brooks documentary, Mel Brooks on Rap. And... You know, as I told you, they kind of intercut from interviews from like the 80s and the 90s. And one of the interviews from the 80s that Mel was talking about is he, you know, the interviewer asked him like, you know, do you ever get asked, why don't you ever make a serious movie? And he's like, I do. He's like, my rebuttal is I do make serious movies. He's like, because comedy only works truly if you're holding up a mirror to society, to a subject. And he talked about racial prejudice and talked about blazing saddles. He's like, so I do make serious movies. Now, are they dramatic? No. And I think that also leads into high anxiety because right. he did take it seriously. Mm-hmm. All of them took it seriously. Yeah. It just so happens to be a comedy. Right. And and he's exactly right. That's what makes it work. Right. Yeah. Um, if they, you know, if, if I don't know, because, I mean, if they were just casual Hitchcock fans, mm-hmm. I would say that the movie wouldn't be any good, but they probably wouldn't have made it in the first place. Yeah, right? probably not. Uh, to be able to make this movie, you have to truly love Hitchcock and and know his style, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because I know they use a lot of camera angles that Alfred would use, mm-hmm. and uh, the camera is actually a really important bit in how it moves. Because um, yes, it is used for comedy. And I guess we're just jumping right into this. So <laughs> it's, yes, it's used for comedy in a few places, and we'll talk about those few places. Yeah. But uh, what, what Mel really achieved in this attention to detail is the voyeuristic camera, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock is known for this, right? Uh, and especially in the movies that deal with voyeurism, you know, you got your rear window, vertigo, psycho. Right. Right. Where the camera is an extension of the idea of peering in on someone's private life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the way the camera moves, the way it is placed either where or or how it's moving or how slow it's going or how fast the ball, whatever. Right. And of course, he plays it for parody when it crashes in the window or crashes out of the window, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, which is a little nod, in my opinion, to Rope, which is one of my favorite Hitchcock films uh, that's made to um, look like one continuous shot. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, back in 48 uh, when he did Rope. And, um, and so with that, right, um, it's, it's just a remarkable attention to detail in camera movement something that most people wouldn't think about when doing a parody right right yeah yeah because you know you know i think something that we haven't really discussed uh during the series is you know people now when you think parody you think of you know like not another teen movie scary movie meet the spartans i really liked a haunted house um oh yeah yeah 
But anyway, go ahead. Uh, but anyway, you know, like, you know, th- those parodies are made to really get a laugh and mm-hmm. to really, I mean, just to make fun of. You know, and Mel's not really making fun of Alfred. Right. He's taking... No way he is. He's yeah. taking Alfred's style and then adding his twist to it to make it funny. Right. Um, and, I mean, there's even stuff that he added in there that... Um, like, little details that aren't meant to ever be funny. Yeah. Right? Uh, for instance, Madeline Kahn's hair color. Right? Mm-hmm. She's blonde in the movie, right? Almost platinum blonde. Yeah. And the only reason she had it, because she's not blonde, right? The only reason that she is in the movie is because it's supposed to be an Alfred Hitchcock parody. And mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, let's name some, use Kim Novak, Grace Kelly, Janet Lee, um, Tippi Hedren, right? These are all very famous blonde actresses that he worked with because he loved blonde actresses, right? Yeah. In his films. And, of course, there's tons more that I can't really remember right now. But... It's never supposed to be funny that she's blonde. It's just important that she had to be. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. If she had kept her normal hair... Which I think was brown. Yeah. Or reddish brown. It just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and speaking of Madeline Kahn, you know, and I think that's something else that I personally love about the movie is that we have returning Mel Brooks actors. Of course. So, of course, Madeline Kahn, my yeah. favorite. Your favorite. Um, Harvey Corman. Love him. Um... Closely, closely, Beachman. I was like, I'm forgetting someone. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, we get a lot of first-time collaborators in this movie that have come back later, mm-hmm. like Dick Van Patten. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe my favorite in the movie, by the way. Dick Van Patten. Yes, I. <laughs> I loved his his his, uh, his German, you know, whatever professor character. Isn't that who that is? No. Oh. Who played the professor? Sorry. I'm getting my people mixed up. Oh, shit. I don't know. Oh, shit. Um, I just know they really wanted a good character actor for Professor Little Oldman. <laughs> that little old man. Yeah, Little Oldman. Little Oldman. Uh, hang on. Nice. Uh, we'll have it in five. Yeah, take your time. Four, three. Uh, Howard Morris. Howard Morris. There we go. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, Howard Morris is... Maybe my favorite part of the whole movie, maybe. Yeah. Um, especially when they're like, oh my God, is he dead? And he, goes, no, I'm just leaving. It freaks people out. They're like, and he's completely aware, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it just, man. And, you know, this is the first time that Mel, you know, in the special features, they said this is the first time he's really been front and center. And we discussed that this will later become maybe a problem. Yeah, because, right? you know, the movie that they did before this, Silent Movie, he wasn't the only lead. Mm-hmm. He was sharing it between him, Marty Feldman, and Dom DeLuise. Right. So it wasn't just Mel driving the movie, but with this one, Mel is front and center. Right. And as I also learned, uh, uh, Gene Wilder was supposed to be Richard Thorndike. Oh, that's interesting. But due to scheduling, he couldn't make it. Okay. And uh, and so Mel was oh, like, "Yeah, I would really like that." <laughs> yeah, could you imagine? I mean, I, I not saying that what Mel did wasn't funny. No, I like the movie a lot. That's not what I'm saying. I think I think w- with Gene driving it, it would have been 
Yeah, because him and Madeline Kahn would have, I mean, just destroyed. Yeah. Right? And yes, uh, Mel and Madeline have really great chemistry in the movie. That's not what I'm saying. they, they, They share the screen very well together, especially at the airport. Oh, yeah. Right? That scene where they're pretending to be the... (laughs) The Yiddish couple? Yeah. Hilarious. Right? With the celery! (laughs) (laughs) What's the baby? Did I win something? Huh? What I win? Uh, It's it's fantastic, right? Yeah. But I think with Gene, we would have been, I think, catapulted up to Young Frankenstein level. Yeah. Right? This is not Young Frankenstein. To me, it is not Young Frankenstein. No, I mean, no, no. I, I would agree with that. I still love the movie. I think it's well, still funny. But, you know, as we discussed last week, Young Frankenstein is Mel's... Tip top. Probably one of Mel's best movies. Right. Um, apparently, they also wanted to get Cary Grant That's to really play Which is amazing, because he was a common leading man for Alfred Hitchcock. Well, and um, as I also learned, again, uh, from that Mel documentary, mm-hmm. that Carrie um, was a big fan of Mel's. Uh, him and Carl, he bought their album and then bought, like, a ton of copies and sent it to his friends because oh, he, he loved it. Yeah. And would call Mel up and they would go to lunch together at the commissary. Oh, that's fun. And Mel, Mel loved it until, you know, Mel was saying in an interview how... Then it got to the point where he didn't know what to talk about anymore. And so he was like, I remember one day I get a phone call. Like, is Mel in? And Mel goes, if it's Carrie, I'm not here. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, and that would have been interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what, you know, Carrie would have done in the movie, right? Uh, it just would have been fun to say, hey, he was in a bunch of those movies, right? Yeah. He was in To Catch a Thief, Notorious, North by Northwest. I mean, he was in quite a few. Yeah. So, uh, Jeremy, would, would you like to give a synopsis of this movie? If I do it, we'll be here for hours. Right. Well, here's the deal. Is with stuff like this, it's so hard for me to do a synopsis because I'm not paying attention to the narrative. I'm paying attention to... The, the homage, the parody, right? I'm paying attention to all that. So to me, it's it's a very clustered, uh, sort of uh, crowded narrative. Well, I mean, it kind of is. But... Because, you know, yes, there there needs to be a, a sort of suspense mystery narrative, right? Like with the, you know, where is that patient? That's not the real patient. Oh, yeah, right? uh, Brisbane. Right, Brisbane. Thank you. <laughs> well, we know her name is Victoria Brisbane because of her car and her jumpsuit um, as her initials all over it. Yeah. Um, but then we have that short little intermission when he goes to, um, not to San Francisco. Yes, to San Francisco, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, of course, is extremely important because that's where a lot of Alfred Hitchcock films take place once he stopped making films in the United Kingdom, right? Once he came to America, he predominantly set his films in San Francisco. Francisco. Hmm. So, Lord knows why. Well, th- so did you, would you like me to do it then? Because I could do it. Yeah, go for it. Because I, can- I, I honestly, you know, and this is a detriment to myself because I just <laughs> didn't fucking pay attention to that <laughs> at all. Well, everyone, when he says he didn't pay attention, he didn't really pay attention to the just the... The overall narrative, yeah. just the, 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 how did we get from A to B to C to D? I don't, I, I didn't really pay attention to yeah. that. Okay. Here we go. Take your time. 
So, uh, hi, I'm Zaddy. Uh, we have Mel Brooks playing our leading man, uh, Dr. Richard H. Thorndike, who has just been named the uh, new head chief of the psychiatric hospital, the psychoneurotic for the very, very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> How I read it was... <laughs> so the very, very, very yeah, nervous. Yeah, because I think it's underlined, right? Yeah. And I just, I just love the name, right? The name is so great. And then it's... I say the very, very nervous. Um, it's just, sorry I interrupt because it's, that just made me giggle. You know? uh, and uh, he's introduced to his new staff, uh, Dr. Wentworth, played by Dick Van Patten, um, Dr. Montague, played by Harvey Cordman, and Nurse Diesel, played by uh, Cloris Leachman. Um, and also there consulting is his old professor, Professor Little Oldman. Yeah, Little little Old Man. <laughs> little Old Man. Um, but we learn that Richard is suffering from high anxiety, which, if most of you don't know what that is, it is a real uh, medical issue where you can't stand being in high places. Um, looking down fills you with fear, and it's, I don't have that. I mean, it's, it's closer to vertigo, yeah. right? Which, of course... That's the point. That's the point, because it's... Vertigo, yeah. right? Um, it's probably not called high anxiety. No, I think it's. Anymore. I think it's. I think it's vertigo in the DSM five or whatever. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway. Uh, my degree uh, in psychology. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, but also Richard is also very paranoid, um, as we learn in the opening oh, sequence. <laughs> I have never been so nervous in my life, <laughs> and so needlessly nervous in my life, because that's where uh, Mel really gets to set up I pay attention to Hitchcock yeah here's how here's how he can make you nervous right yeah and it, I mean it's little things that make you just so nervous and you're just like why am I nervous and of course the joke when he leaves like that was a crazy airport. yeah he said what a dramatic airport <laughs> so the scene in question everyone is uh, Richard is flying into I think it's Los Angeles I, I think so too. Um, where the institute is, and he is go- getting off the plane, and encounters just a barrage of dramatic events. Uh, a lady growling at him and looks like she's holding a knife, and runs at him. Come to find out, she's just meeting her husband, and she's got a, a umbrella or something. Yeah, you know, I think it was a sausage. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, and then uh, a man who has to speak with him now. It's urgent. <laughs> Come to find out he's a flasher. Yeah. Um, and then it just all this other stuff, him having to go down the escalator and just finally get out of the airport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Richard is already paranoid to begin with. And he starts to notice little things that are kind of strange at the Institute. But what I think is funny is no one but Brophy really gets it. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, there's all these red flags already, and Richard is just like, oh, okay. And, but Brophy's like, you know, like, with the TV. Like, yeah, it was probably the TV, probably the TV. There was no TV. Yeah. No TV. <laughs> uh, and so, anyway, um, so Richard then decides... After he loses one, uh, after Dick Van Patten's character dies uh, of a cerebral hemorrhaging, 
<laughs> um, he decides that it's good to go to San Francisco to speak at this conference, but he starts to uncover the truth when he meets Madeline Kahn, uh, Victoria Brisbane, and he knows something's wrong. So the audience, we already know that Cloris Leachman and Harvey Corman are up to something. We already know that they are doing something, so they decide to frame Richard for murder by using uh, someone that we just... I, th- I think we just know him as Braces. Mm-hmm. Um, and hijinks ensue while in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, we encounter a bird's homage. <laughs> um, then, the, of course, the airport scene of him and Madeline trying to get back to Los Angeles. Right. Where then they make it back to the Institute to save her dad... Because he's the key to all of this. Right. Which they don't really explain. Not necessarily. And I think that's probably where I got confused, where I'm just like, wait a minute. But they didn't explain why that's important. Yeah, why like, why is it important that her father not die? <laughs> well, I mean, we know why he shouldn't die. No, it's just... But, yeah. but, I, right, right, but right. why he's so important. Right. And, you know, I, I was like, well, are they just, like, keeping really wealthy people in here? I think so. To keep them... Paying for the services, right? I think, I think that that's. The, I think that's implied. Yeah. That yeah, that was sort of one of the underlying. Yeah, because you know, because when they meet with Zach, he you know he says his family's paying twelve thousand dollars to this institute, but he seems normal and healthy. Right. But anyway, uh, so they save Victoria's dad and they get married. Right. The end. High anxiety. High anxiety. So okay, uh, I do want to talk. I I do want us to choose. Our favorite homage. Okay. Okay. I have mine, so I'll go first. Okay. Um, so you can think. Because <laughs> yeah, um, I really need to think about it. In this one, okay. So this is my favorite homage, and I'll have to explain where it comes from first. Okay. That way you'll know. Okay. Uh, which one I'm talking about, and that way the audience does too. Is this so, the one you were talking about off mic? Yes. I told you not to tell me? Yes. Okay, cool. So this is my favorite homage because it's not for the casual... Hitchcock viewer, right? Okay. This is for people who love Hitchcock enough to, to watch know. his early stuff. Okay. So, back in the twenties, he was a sort of director for hire, right? Mm-hmm. And he did a few things that were just—I mean, they were fine. You no. know, they were just your run-of-the-mill films, right? Right. This one, uh, which is—it's so funny that we were going through those films earlier today in your HBO Max because I said it out loud. Um, he made this film called The Lodger, the oh, story okay. of the London Fog. And this is meant to be, this is said to be, uh, the first true Hitchcock film. This is where he got to really use his creativity, use his genius, build suspense, and also be very creative in the aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. So by that, I mean, there is a scene where we are supposed to understand that the homeowners are eavesdropping and listening, right, mm-hmm. to the lodger upstairs. Well, how the hell are we going to do that? Well, he said, let's just show him under, let's film him walking above a glass floor. That way, uh, when we look up, we can see him pacing back and forth, and that way we can demonstrate that they are hearing that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, 
the glass coffee table is my favorite homage because they they keep placing things over the camera lens and And so the camera has to move move. right Um, and so of course Leishman just shoves that tray yes oh my god it's brilliant and I I I remember seeing it and I was like what the fuck that is that's a deep dive for Hitchcock yeah and that is so brilliant and that's one of the that's one of the things that makes Hitchcock Hitchcock is that he will you know do things like that that are just way out of left field that are just completely genius, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for 1927, that's brilliant. Right. Right? So, for mine, I mean, so, I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to. And now that uh, I got that HBO Max. Oh, my God. looks nuts. Um, I definitely want to watch more. Um, so, mine is kind of obvious. Uh, it is the... The Psycho homage. Yes. This was my second favorite, only because of what he used for the blood. But uh, we'll we'll yeah. get into that. So, so if anyone hasn't seen Psycho, one of the most famous scenes of the film is Alfred killing off our leading woman, Janet. Um, Thirty minutes into the movie, twenty it's a, minutes. It's a little like forty. Okay. Um, he she gets killed off by Norman Bates, who we think is just we think it's his mom. Right. Come to find out, it's just him dressed as his mom. A lot of edible things. Spoiler. That's <laughs> really funny. Um, spoiler. For, for Bates Motel. Oops. Oh, and spoiler, I mean, uh, spoiler for Psycho. That movie came out in 1960, so. Anyway, uh, but there's a, you know, so the famous shot of Norman, of Janet showering, and we see Norman come in through the clear shower curtain and him stabbing her. Of course, as you said, this is 1960, so it's not overtly graphic like most horror movies are now so when he stabs her he's obviously we can see he's pawing at air but it's still very suspenseful Mm -hmm. and still very dramatic and Mel does a fantastic job of recreating this Mm -hmm. almost shot for shot almost almost I know there's a few things that he had to fix yeah and I mean okay so it's. I love that you mentioned this one because I get to pitch a documentary okay. to you guys that I've seen that I absolutely love. Uh, it came out three years ago, and it's called 78-52 Hitchcock Shower Scene. And it is a hour and 30 minutes of dissecting... Just that scene? The shower scene. Yeah. And so Ooh. we have everyone talk. We have all these talking heads discussing it, why it, why it works, why it's so amazing. And they go frame by frame. So, right. It, so I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. Hang on, guys. Hang on. Um, so as I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks, there's a YouTube channel I watch called Defunct Land. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone should check that out. I think it's really, if you love theme parks, I think anyone would like this show, Defunct Land. And Universal, uh, mm-hmm. Florida, um, where me and Ashley went, uh, where I would love to take you, to be honest. I, I would, dude, seriously. But I'm worried I'd lose you. I'd be in the middle of the park going, Jeremy? I'd be gone. I know. I'd be one with the park now. Uh, but anyway, they're, they had a attraction, not necessarily a ride, an attraction called Hitchcock, The Art of Making Movies. Very cool. And it was all about how Alfred made his movies, mm-hmm. and in particular, 
shower scene mm-hmm. and how people would they would have a cast member someone who worked at the park take an audience member and walk them through it and they would recreate the scene in front of everyone very cool um and it was so fascinating to learn uh because you know one of the big things with the funk land is he wants people to learn these things mm-hmm. and what happened to these attractions because this attraction was eventually replaced by shrek 4d oh so something of of merit and value then well, because well, they ran it from the early '90s to the early 2000s. Oh, that's very cool. They ran it for about ten years. Okay, but in the 2000s, no one cared about Alfred Hitchcock anymore. That's a shame. I know, um, but Universal still wanted to pay homage to that. So apparently, in the Shrek 4D ride, there's a uh, a crow at oh. one point. That you they they hold on because they, like they play like a pre-show thing and there's a crow that they hold on for a little okay. bit and it's meant to be. Ugh. But anyway, um, I just thought it was interesting that you mentioned that because then you know I learned because then there was an attraction that literally yeah taught did you that how for, to do it yeah. So anyway, so Mel's scene, um, I should mention that before then. So Mel's at this conference, <laughs> and he's on the 17th floor of this pretty. Dope hotel. I gotta say, as Brophy says, it's a nice joint you got here. Um, but uh, Mel's in, uh, but Mel had been telling the bellhop, "Hey, if, when you get a chance, bring me a newspaper." And bef- right before that, they mention a Mister McGuffin, <laughs> which is which is unbelievably brilliant because it plants the word in your head, right? Uh, because it has nothing to do with the newspaper that no. he's about to ask for. But it plants the word in your head because this is, of course, a trope in Halford Hitchcock films, mm-hmm. the MacGuffin, yeah. right? Uh, in in Psycho, if we want to keep doing this theme, it's the money, yeah. right? It's the money that she steals from her job and then runs away with, right? Yeah. We are convinced this is going to be the most important piece of, of, of information and uh, of, of, you know, prop or whatever in the movie, right? Right. But then it... No. It turns um, out, who fucking cares? Uh, which is kind of funny because in now, movies now, especially big budget movies, MacGuffins are used as a way of essentially lazy storytelling. Right. The end all, like, oh, yeah, we have this now. We're done. Yeah. You know? But in Mel's case, he's just like, it's very important. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, because so, he wanted a room on at least the second floor... But a Mr. McGuffin called ahead and changed it to the 17th floor. And then he asks the bell, because the bellhop says, do you need anything? I'd like a newspaper. You got it. Got you a newspaper. Well, Mel keeps hounding him. Hey, don't forget that newspaper. And uh, in the special features, they said that after the, the shower scene, that, that I, I can't remember his name, but he couldn't talk afterwards because he did it so much. And so Mel just keeps hounding him, even calling the front desk and saying, hey, I need that newspaper. Um, and so Mel's showering, and again, almost shot for shot, exactly how mm-hmm. Hitchcock did it. And we see a figure come into the shower, and a curtain comes back, and it's the bellhop with the rolled-up newspaper going, Here! and doing the exact same motion as Norman, stabbing Mel with the newspaper. Right. I'm not going to do the high-pitched voice, because I think it'll hurt everyone's right. ears. It's, uh, it's amazing. But he's going, Here! Here, here's your paper. Happy. And then yep. he leaves the room. 
And Mel does the infamous shower pull down. Yep. Uh, well, he pulls the curtain down, and then we see the blood, the ink oh, from the paper, circled the drain. Unbelievably brilliant. That that shot is so good. And and then my favorite, the, to really land the joke, a kid gets no tip. Because <laughs> he's, he's laying his head as Janet Lee would have, right? <laughs> but he's... He's awake and he's just like, oh, that kid gets no tip. Um, Love it. So apparently, That's a good choice. So apparently, Alf, this was Alfred's one problem with the movie is apparently he was like, we only had 10 shower rings. You used 13. And Mel's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh my God. But I mean, to just get that wrong, that's fine. Yeah. Right. Um, but I get, I do get what Hitchcock means <laughs> because it's the rhythm. Right, so to pull down thirteen instead of ten, right, mm-hmm. makes that shot longer, right? Yeah. So I get it, and it's, <laughs> and of course he's such a nitpicky guy, yeah. right? Um, this we can we can get into this um, that the way Hitchcock used to make movies with, of course, microscope like detail, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he would put a magnifying glass up to anything, right? But that's not right. That needs to be there. That whatever. Right. He would do the same thing with actors. So to quote Hitchcock, he refers to actors as cattle. Really? You herd cattle, right? Yeah. That's what he does with actors. He herds them. So they are not like, hey, Hitch, I think my character would kind of do this. Oh, you do this when I say action, and then you can stop when I say cut. How about that? <laughs> so what you're saying is... Uh Actors nowadays have it easy. Uh, well, I mean, because they can collaborate with the director I guess, now. Yeah, um, yeah. He he had it in his head, right? So what you're saying is, if uh, Joaquin Phoenix was uh, alive back then and was trying to make the changes he did, like with Joker, Alfred would have been like, "Get off my set." Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Or he probably would have never hired him in the first place. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what he used to do, right? With actors, that's, that is really crazy. Because I mean, like, I mean, I know actors don't have it easy. But hearing that, you know, and seeing all the special features I've seen with some actors who have that kind of collaborative mm-hmm. spirit with the director, and not to say that that didn't exist back then. No, no, no. Just not with Hitchcock. Yeah, he yeah, like yeah. It's just it's just so crazy that you know, and I'm sure people wanted to work with him. Of course, you know. But I, I guess it was one of those things of, you know what you're getting into. Yeah, because, I mean, working with Hitchcock was an automatic home run. Yeah. Right? You don't fail with Hitchcock. Not really. I think that... I'm trying to think of a movie that... Didn't do very didn't well. Didn't do very well. Maybe The Trouble with Harry. But that's just because it's not your typical Hitchcock film. Right? It's, more, it's more of a comedy. I heard something about, like, family plot. Wasn't oh, that well, good? I mean, that's way after this. This is... I even think, um, I think it's, excuse me, man, this was what, 77? Like, he had just made Family Plot. Like, I mean, Family Plot. High Anxiety? Yeah. 79. 79? Okay, then yeah, he had made Family Plot maybe like four or five years before that. So, I mean, that was his last, was it his last movie? I think it was. Family Plot was his last movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. And, and so, maybe, right? But I don't really count that one. So, so, so I want to talk about 
So we talked about our favorite homages. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, our favorite bits. Okay. And I already have mine locked and loaded. Okay. Because, I mean, it's two different scenes, mm-hmm. but they're the same, and we kind of briefly touched on okay, it. Okay, cool. Okay, go ahead. Is the camera itself is, as a way, a character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the first time we get this is when we get that slow, well, not that slow, but that push in on the dinner the camera's coming and coming and then just crashes through the window and they all turn around and then the camera slowly pulls out and they're like so anyway right it's <laughs> and we uh, actually get voices in the second one right? yes because at the very end of the movie uh richard and victoria are married and we, yeah, we hear voices like okay all right now coming out coming out coming out watch the wall watch the wall and then you just hear this <laughs> crash and mel and madeline are like what? And they're like, just, just keep going. Maybe no one will notice it. No, and the hole is massive. <laughs> like, just keep going. Come on, keep, keep, keep going. Keep pulling out. Yeah, it's it's half of either wall that they broke. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, <laughs> and I agree. That's a really good one. I I love it so much because I, I don't think I've outright said it. I think I've said it. I love fourth wall breaks. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's so funny. So you um, must really love the music stuff too because they would. Um, they, they would say something dramatic and then the dramatic yeah. music would start and they would <gasps> and then the music was diegetic right they they could hear it yeah right? ex- which I loved especially in the in the opening scene when Brophy's like oh I think he was a victim of foul play and you hear like do 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 and like symphony and then there's a symphony bus driving by yeah I love fourth wall breaks the reason also I wanted to bring this bit up and I'll go more into detail next week is Mel does try to recreate that shot in a later movie. Let's see if you can figure out. Okay. What? Which one do you? Which movie? Which movie later in his career do you think he tries to recreate that push in where the camera crashes through something? Oh, good question. I guess I already know it. Good question. Oh. I don't know. What is it? Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Robin Hood. Yes, it's when Maid Marian is yeah. singing, and the the camera's slow pushing in on her window. But the only problem with this one, uh, with Robin Hood Men in Tights, is it doesn't have the same comedic timing that High Anxieties have. Because we see the camera pushing in and pushing in and pushing in, and then we cut to... I don't remember the actress who plays Maid Marian in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, and she's in the bath singing. And then we hear the camera crash through the window. And she looks over. And we see the lens. And it quickly... <gasps> right, 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 right. So That's right. The comedic timing wasn't as... Right, because we weren't... We weren't behind the camera. No. Right. right. That makes sense. Um, and Mel kind of does that again later on in Robin Hood Men in Tights when they're sword fighting. And... Carrie Elwes lunges and he hits a guy's donut, and yeah, and we see the the production crew right there, and they're like, oh, yeah, sort of like the Blazing Saddles thing. Yeah, and know. so it's I don't go more into really it next week, Mike. Sorry, but you know, it's it's those things where Mel tries to recreate something that worked and didn't and work that the well. The reason it works for high anxiety is because. Again, it's that it's that exaggeration of the voyeuristic camera. 
Right. Right? This this camera is literally the audience peering in on private <laughs> matter, right? And so that's why it works, because it's it's Hitchcock. Right. Doing it again wouldn't make any sense in any other context. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, that's why it wasn't... I mean, it, it's funny to a point mm-hmm. in Robin Hood Men in Tights, but it's hysterical in high anxiety. Oh, by the way, um, in case you were wondering, Robin Hood Men in Tights is not our movie next week. Uh, so, oh, no. No, no, yeah. no. Um, we'll tell you. I'm thinking of mine... Yeah, it's going to be the I got it, I got it, I got it. Ah. So that's when, <laughs> when we first meet, what was his name? Brophy. Brophy. When we first meet Brophy, he's going to, you know. Uh, Ron Carey. Going to carry um, his the like, trunk. Yeah. And, and I just love the I got it, I got it, I got it, I don't I got, got it. it. And, and he does it like three more times. Yeah. Right. And to me, it. It got funnier every time because I didn't expect it to need to do it more than once. Yeah. Right. Well, and I learned something from the special features. Apparently, Ron Carey was a bodybuilder. Oh, or, that's Or at that's least a weightlifter. And um, uh, I can't think of his name. The guy who plays Braces, who was mm-hmm. also one of the writers, writers mm-hmm. um, when they would go work out together, that's what Ron would do. I got it. I got it. <laughs> And That's he thought it was just so funny that Ron incorporated that into Brophy's character. Uh, yeah, and I also think it's funny because he does it, and then he does it when they go to the institute. It, get, it gets more ridiculous, yeah. right? Because, of course, you kind of understand he can't pick up the trunk. But then he can't pick up the rock. <laughs> and then he can't pick up the... It's hilarious. Yeah. Right. Um, now, I do want to talk about... Uh, not necessarily my favorite bits, just my favorite interactions. And that's anything with Harvey Corman in this one. Like, I love Harvey in Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like with this one, it's like he was playing Hedy Lamar or Hedley Lamar uh, in 1979. Yeah. Be- like, one of my favorite, again, bits is, you know, Dr. Montague, what is. The rate of patient recovery here. Patient recovery? Have that for you in a moment. He pulls out his calculator. Once in a blue moon. <laughs> I just I fucking love it. And 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 I love that Harvey and Cloris Leachman kept trying to one-up each other any scene they were in together. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, which made so... Like, like, apparently Mel got in some trouble for the... Uh, bonded scene. Hilarious. Because Mel wanted to show it all. Of course. And they were like, no. And he was like, too bad. Too bad. Doing it anyway. Yeah. Because that scene is so funny. Um, and we, I should mention everyone, so there's a scene where they hear strange noises coming from Nurse Diesel's room, which she says is the TV. <laughs> and come to find out, her and Dr. Montague, Harvey Corman, uh, are partaking in some BDSM together. Oh, oh that. yeah. And she's got Harvey tied up uh, with rope and chain and handcuffed in her closet, <laughs> and, and starts spanking him. And just this whole like, I'm sorry. Another small little detail is Cloris Leachman's character, Nurse Diesel. Thank you. Um, her. 
dress clothes is just a nicer version of her nurse outfit. Yeah. Or just a black version of her yeah. nurse outfit with like rhinestones or whatever sequins on the hat. Uh-huh. Hilarious, right? That's just a little, you know, little yeah. side joke that, you know, is just for if you're paying attention or if you give a shit, which I do and I think it's really, really funny. Yeah. Cloris Leachman, is she... I'm surprised you didn't pick Madeline Kahn. Well, see, okay. I love Madeline. But she, in this one, I really see her as, and, and it's why she was, you know, they, they apparently they wrote the part for her, which I love, because Madeline, she deserved any part. Um, but she, I, I always see her as the, the femme fatale in this movie, mm-hmm. because she doesn't, not necessarily isn't funny in the movie, but she doesn't get a lot of chance to really flex her her probably on purpose um yeah i'm gonna go ahead and just say that that's probably because i don't know it's hard to say that women don't get a lot of shots in hitchcock films because that's not true because tippy hedron is the main character right in birds right or uh, janet lee in the first half of psycho mm-hmm. right so I don't know, but in the fact that you said film fatale is really interesting because in some cases, yes, right, um, there is a film fatale in in Hitchcock films. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, they just they don't cause or or sort of construct the the trouble for the men, right? But they don't help either. Like they don't make it better. Yeah, right? and, and so, I mean, and with all that being said, um. Every scene Madeline's in, she kills. Like when she lights the cigarette and she goes, because <laughs> I guess hair or something got in her mouth. Or it's loose tobacco from yeah. the filter or whatever. And then, of course, the, the phone call scene cracks my shit up every time. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like, I know all the other girls are into these kinky phone calls, but I am not having it, mister. But she stays on the phone. Okay, well, what's going on? What do you wear? Like, what you, how'd you get my uh, room number? <laughs> and just, I, I love Madeline dearly. I think that's why I didn't like say. That's why I picked Harvey over her because yeah. it just. I do think that Harvey and Cloris, their interaction is way because theirs is dialed up to yeah. eleven, right? Yeah, because they're trying to outdo the other. Yeah, and and so, <laughs> and so when they're on screen together. It's just it's too funny, right? I mean, yeah, these guys—they're so out there and so outrageous. Especially with the whole <laughs> come to my room tonight. Ah, can't, I'm tired. I'm gonna turn in. I'll let you wear my underwear. I'll be there. I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right behind you. Ah, it's and it's and uh, man, you know, it just the movie's great, you know, and it's. Like, you know, kind of like what we've been talking about, you know, they took it seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, Mel Mel plays Richard Thorndike as as the straight man. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard doesn't ha- really have a lot of funny lines. Not necessarily. I mean, there's that scene in the airport, right, yeah, which I yeah. love, where they're playing the old Jewish couple. <laughs> oh, yo, you need the celery? <laughs> that's that's all I can do. I can't, I can't do the rest of it. That's... <laughs> Without being offensive. It's one of... I mean, I don't care. Now, I do want to touch on... Because I know that every week 
we we are praising these movies up and down. Yes. I want to point out a flaw in this movie. Okay. That I I just do not like. Okay. It is the song High Anxiety. We we get this it I know the narrative is sort of jumbled and crowded and you know because it's to support the homage to support the parody, right? So yeah. of course it's not going to make perfect sense. So the scene which Jeremy's talking about, and I'll, I'll let him go more into it, is um, Thorndike has just given this really great speech <laughs> to his colleagues at the convention using medical terms and children's words, because there's children in the audience, you know, oh, with, the, right. with the pee-pee and the oh, woo-woo. So funny. Um, and he's at the bar with Madeline Kahn having a drink. And the piano player, who his name escapes me because he was in the Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck, I can't think of his name. Anyway, um, is offering people open mic. And he gets to Richard and says, like, how about you, Doc? And he's like, well, do you know the song High Anxiety? And Richard belts into this song. And now I'll let Jeremy finish saying why he doesn't like it. Okay. So, okay. So I don't like the song in general. I I don't think it's as funny as it could be. Mm-hmm. But I'm also not a fan of comedic music. So, I mean, that's probably on me as well. But well, I think it, it just it it just brings the narrative as as cluttered as it is. It just crashes it to a screeching halt for f- like five minutes. Yeah, you know. And so I just you know that's the only problem I have with this movie is it it doesn't serve the homage it doesn't serve the parody. Yeah. Right because there has never been a song break in a Hitchcock film. I so I think what it was. Which I kind of explained to you off mic. The joke is, um, is that Richard is, you know, he's a doctor, he's a psychiatrist, you know, he's probably a novice singer, and then he belts out Sinatra, like, right, you know. But I think the other thing is, I think Mel was trying to do what he did with Madeline mm-hmm. in Blazing Saddles, where Madeline is singing the song. Of course, that fits for her character of uh, being uh, a showgirl. And, you know, and she talks to the audience. And I think that's what Mel was kind of trying to do, maybe. That's just my own personal opinions. Because, you know, he starts talking to the people uh, at the bar while singing. And it, I think that's what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. But now I don't have a problem with it. I know. Because now that I understand the joke, I think it's absolutely hysterical. That, And that's where we're different. Because even, even that, I don't think... Should have been in the it's movie. It's funny enough, right? I don't no. think that that premise is funny enough. Um, it, I don't know. It may just be a, you know, a generational thing, maybe. Maybe that is that's just one thing I can't. Is I am eighty five years old, but <laughs> I don't get that right. <laughs> and you know, it's it wouldn't bother me if it were in a different type of movie, right? If it were in. I mean, we technically got a music break in Young Frankenstein. That's true. But that was to serve a purpose. Right. That was part of the demonstration of yeah. the creature, right? Of, I mean, of his achievement. Yeah. Right? I mean, and I, and I get what you're saying. Cause yeah. This, do, this scene does, doesn't really serve a purpose. No. 
Um, and I was waiting for it to. And that's, you know, of course I've seen this movie before, but um, I'm speaking like I just saw it. But um, when I saw it the first time, I was waiting for it to serve a purpose to maybe... Like pay off something? Or, or you know, right, or maybe, you know, the song will transition into an homage to something else, mm-hmm. right? And it never did, right? No. And so... I just, you know, the only bit that I guess we could argue serves a purpose is high anxiety is Mel's, quote, vertigo, right? Yeah. That's it. Right? But we when we get vertigo at the end, you know, with the stairs and the, you know, the the bell tower, whatever. So, yeah. Um, that is vertigo. Yeah. So we didn't need it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I, I get where you're coming from, because the scene does serve no purpose. It's just like a one-off scene. And I and I hate those in any type of movie, old and new, mm-hmm. when it's just a scene that serves no point to the movie. But I think the reason why I do, it doesn't bother me, is because, I don't know. I just, I just like the joke, mm-hmm. you know, of this novice singer. And I'm sure you... Are not the only one. I'm sure I'm the only one um, <laughs> who doesn't like it. You know. Yeah, but I mean, uh, well, and and in the special features, they said when Mel first came up with the idea of the song, he recorded it on a handheld recorder and kind of just croaked it out, mm-hmm. um, and then it slowly evolved into the the joke about he would sound like Frank Sinatra and. Which I hear more. I was hoping he would. I think the joke would land more if he didn't use his voice, right? If he was mouthing the words and and, and, and suddenly, then it was really Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or something, right? Or if you know, um, again, it was somebody else, right? But it was yeah. still him. And he, I love Mel, but he's not Frank Sinatra, right? Yeah. In the, in the special feature, he said that um, no one but him can do Sinatra. Uh, and I love Mel, too. And I would hate to disagree with him, but there are singers that sound a little bit more closely to Frank Sinatra. Right. I mean, and, of course, Frank himself. Um, but, I mean, I get the joke, you know. Right. Um, yeah, man. So... I wanna I wanna go ahead and tease not next week. Oh, not not next week yet. We're getting there. I do want to tease what I've been hinting at and what I will. And I'm sure we'll both go into much more detail next week. Is Mel's steadily steadily decline in critical success? Yes. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, everyone is this is Mel's last homage. Um, I would say this is a part four of his homage, you know, with Blazing Saddles. Um, well, not really necessarily homage, but more so his intro into parody mm-hmm. and where that kind of declines him. Because when we first decided to do this, I was doing a little research. I I like to read Rotten Tomato scores. I've told you this. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I just want to see what the critics are saying about a movie that I love. Maybe they hated it. Maybe they loved it, too. 
I just want to see what they say. Um, that doesn't really affect my opinion mm. on the movie. You know, like if a critic was like, you know, if Rotten Tomatoes is like, ah, zero percent rotten, but I loved it. It's not going to change it. Right. But if it was like a movie, but you know, like I just like to see what other people say. You know, and I mean, sometimes critics don't know what the hell they're talking about, but sometimes, sometimes they know what they're talking about. Um, and I noticed after Young Frankenstein, which I think has like a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, Mel kind of had a small decrease from Young Frankenstein to Silent Movie into this movie. This movie has an 81% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, but then after this, it kind of takes a dip. Yeah. And, and a very drastic dip. And I don't want to blame it all on Mel's leading role status, right? Because no. he doesn't lead all of them. No, right? I... Coming up. She'll sh- just do one or two more, and that's it. Shortly after I told you that, I was like, well, no, because, you know, in Robin Hood, he's in it for, like, a few scenes. Right. You know? And in Carrie- Spaceballs, he's in it just for a few scenes. Yeah. And, um, well, I mean, he plays two characters in Spaceballs, but still. Still. He's not really in it that much. And so I think what it was is Mel was trying to adapt to the changing times. Because mm-hmm. this is 79, high anxiety. And then I think our next week episode was 81. Mm-hmm. So just a two-year difference. Yeah. But comedy had changed so much in that two years. And then, especially from next week's episode to Spaceballs and then to... Uh, Robin Hood and Dracula Dead and Loving It and Life Stinks Mel just had this drastic decrease in yeah. in in, and I think what it was is I don't think Mel was trying to not necessarily make a point mm-hmm. I think he uh, I just think he was like I just want to make a comedy I think that's all it was he just wanted to make something funny didn't really care about. You know what? I'd agree. I they don't seem as serious. Yeah. This was serious. Young Frankenstein was serious. Blazing Saddles was serious. Even next week's had some seriousness it to it. Serious, right? Yeah. But Dracula did loving it isn't serious. No. Like he didn't take that. Seriously, he didn't. It didn't seem right. He didn't do the same thing he did with Young Frankenstein. Yeah, which he could have, and he should have. Yeah, and and kind of what is so crazy is we have this steadily decline in his movies, and then this drastic dip, and then Robin Hood gives us a little bit of glimmer because his movies drop down to the twenties, and then Robin Hood gives us like a forty, like a forty-six percent. Mm-hmm. And then Dracula Dead and Loving It just plummets. Um, which, don't get me wrong. I like Dracula Dead and Loving It. As I, mean, I mentioned, that. I like silly comedies. Mm-hmm. Dracula Dead and Loving It is 100% a silly comedy. Silly. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes is when Leslie Nielsen is seducing Mia. And he's like, now you will be my bride. And he's holding the innkeeper. And it's this big fat lady. And he's like, oh, okay, now you will be... And just... Right. That shit cracks me up. And, of course, the whole blood scene yes. kills me every time. Right, with Steven Weber. Yeah, that one's great. But... But... 
I think I think Mel. I don't want to say it was having a hard time adapting. I don't think it was any issue of adapting. I think it was more an issue of he was having. I think he was more so having a hard time finding the audience again. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I pfft, what do I know? I don't know shit. But I don't. I mean, I still love all his movies. Now I haven't seen Life Stinks. And I've heard it is his worst movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't ever want to see it because yeah. I don't want it to taint the image I have of Mel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't either. Um, but thank God next week yeah. we're keeping it. We're keeping it OG. We're keeping it yes. good. So and we've actually ended up doing this in chronological order. Good job. Yeah. Uh, so... Next week, the final episode of the Mel Brooks series, uh, we've actually kind of talked about it a little bit in 80s month, way back in season one. Um, Next week, and the finale of Mel Brooks is History of the World Part One. Uh, It is definitely full-blown parody. Mm you mentioned there's still some satire. Some, yeah, because you know you got the Spanish Inquisition stuff, you got the slave trade stuff, you yeah. got you know. So there is, with the help of Gregory Hines, there is satire yes. right, with this parody. I don't know if it's as heavy-handed as Blazing Saddles because it's not just one thing, right? Yes. It's a little bit of little things, right? And it's mm-hmm. very you know again it's episodic. Yeah. So there's something I love. It's something that sort of halts satire a bit because we keep jumping scenarios, right? We keep jumping narratives, yeah, right. Um, it does have my one of my favorite religious jokes of all time, which is dropping five of the fifteen commandments is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Um, it makes my parents laugh every time I do it. I don't know. I'm going to save it for next week. All I was right. going to do it, but I'm going to save it for yeah, next week. Yeah, we're going to do it for next week. So um, next week is History of the World Part 1. That's exciting. And we'll have a special guest next week. Yes, we will. Should we say or just should we just leave it in suspense? We could leave it in suspense, but I mean... I mean, you probably know who it is. A man. I mean, he's been here before. So, I mean, yeah. I don't... It's not like it's... And it's Brad Pitt. Like, it's not like... Could you imagine? That'd be pretty cool, man. Uh, I can't do a rapid impression, but, um, you know, or if it was, you know, like, oh, my God, it's Denis Villeneuve. Guys, we're going to talk. You know, no, it's not that. It's it's, it's Alex. Alex is coming back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, everyone, we, we hope you enjoyed part three of the Mel Brooks series, High Anxiety. Um, and we look forward to seeing you next week. High Anxiety. Whenever you're near High anxiety It's you that I fear My heart's afraid to fly It's crashed before But then you take my hand My heart starts to soar Yeah.
society It's always the same Anxiety It's you That I blame It's very clear to me I've got to give in